0: I wanted to do a show where it was an all-Black cast um, with Black DJs, Black performers, burlesque, drag, queens, kings, anything. If you were a Black entertainer and wanted to showcase your talent, I wanted to give a
1: platform for that. I remember watching like our cities like in complete chaos and with unrest and, and stuff. And I remember typing, if this is the end, we go down sewing.
2: The pandemic, the uprisings of 2020, and constant stressors of the climate crisis are vivid reminders that care is an essential practice of creating belonging. At times over the last two years, care sprang up in unexpected in new ways. At other times, we relied on the continuation and wisdom of long-standing practices. What we've seen is that care, especially collective forms of care, can connect, restore, build power and expand the possibilities of radical social transformation. Welcome to Cultures of Care, a project of the Othering and Belonging Institute. Here we will amplify the work and the people and practices driving the work that is reshaping our future by centering care. I'm Giovanna Fisher, an educator and strategist working at the intersection of creative industry and education.
3: And I'm Evan Bissell. I'm the Arts and Cultural Strategy Coordinator at the Othering and Belonging Institute. I'm an artist, a researcher, an organizer, and a parent. The mention of the year 2020, the word pandemic itself, it all carries so much weight and lands in and on all of us differently.
2: I still feel like it's 2020.
3: Definitely. Yeah, no, it's hard to imagine we are in 2022 now. There are moments where it only felt heavy and where it only continues to feel heavy. And while the heavy truth of it is pretty constant, there are moments when the heavy coexists with inspiration, awe, and gratitude. These feelings definitely surface for me when thinking about the stories of collective care we've been learning about, people who came together and continue to come together to show up for their closest ones, for neighbors and for strangers. You and I were really in awe uh, of the frequency of innovation that people tapped into at the start of the pandemic and the uprisings of 2020 as they sought to care for others, often in ways that dominant systems were not caring for people.
2: And how people have sustained those now two years in.
3: Yeah, people got adaptive, they got funky, they remixed their skills, they applied them in different ways, all in service of collective care. People really showed up.
2: They did. And sometimes this was because new gaps opened up because things couldn't be done in the same way or new needs surfaced. We profiled two performers who did this in really different and really beautiful ways. So many hats or wigs need to be worn to put on your own production in the time of COVID. And Nikki Jizz and Christina Wong, both performance artists, channeled humor, charisma, and sewing skills just to name a few of their talents to bring people together to care for one another during a time where people were disconnected, isolated, and in real material need. The ways Nikki and Christina showed up were very different, but they show how performance and humor can create essential spaces for collective care. And by doing so, they illuminate really important questions about who we care for, who does the labor of caring, and how we can support each other in caretaking. We'll hear from Nikki first, and then Christina. Stay with us.
0: Honestly, like, I don't know what I would do if I wasn't still able to do drag and see other performers and still be able to make content. Like, this is, is, I love doing this and I love making people happy and entertaining people.
2: Nikki Jizz, voted best drag queen of the Bay Area in 2020, hosts Reparations, an all-black drag show which she founded in June 2020. In the monthly show, Nikki creates a vibrant online space centered around black drag performers who are beautiful, hilarious, thought-provoking, and sensual.
0: With everything that was happening in the summer after George Floyd, after Breonna Taylor, it was, I was really emotional and really scared. And that was like a different feeling than I've ever really felt. Like I felt those emotions uh, at times, but it was at one point they were just like, when you're in shelter in place, you're at home. You can't distract yourself from uh, what's going on in the world. You have to face it. So it was one of those things like you are having to deal with it. With the uprising and the Black Lives Matter protesting, like, you're seeing it on your screens, you're seeing Black people being murdered on your screens every day. Like, I didn't feel right doing a show that wasn't about what's happening right now. But it's like, there's real stuff happening in this world. And... I wanted to do something that I still wanted to do it, but I was like, how can I do this and be respectful and also bring light to what I'm feeling right now, what everyone is feeling who looks like myself. I wanted to do a show that it was like, this is for you. I know how you feel. And I wanted to do something that was like, there's always a black girl on the show um, and forever. Hi, I'm Nikki Jizz with Reparations. Reparations, a drag show hosted by me, Nikki Jiz. I had never really been a, like, activist or really, you know, went out protesting and did things like that. That was just never something I really did, and I wanted to contribute in some kind of way, and... I didn't really feel like safe and comfortable being out in the streets because of being in a a pandemic. So I wanted to do reparations and I wanted to do a show where it was an all black cast um, with black DJs, black performers, burlesque, drag queens, kings, anything. If you were a black entertainer and wanted to showcase your talent, I wanted to give a platform for that. It's an outlet for others. You know, drag is an outlet, whether it be for the performer or the audience. It's a way for you to let go and enjoy, you know, the art that is, you know, what we do. If I can do that every day for the rest of my life, I'm I'm happy with that. It keeps me sane. You know, as much as getting all this (laughs) together drives me crazy sometimes, like, it keeps me sane at the same time. So I think... Me combined, like me bringing together my queerness and the idea of reparations is something that I think as a queer black, you know, cis man, like doing something like that is very important to me. I deal with discrimination, whether it be I'm queer or black or both. And the idea of having reparations, of being paid back restoration for all the struggles that we, our ancestors have gone through, that we continue to go through. Um, And especially as a queer people, we go through that as well. I think that just like adds double, you know, just saying, I mean, I'll take double pay for that. And yeah, it's, it's rough some days, but I think people have to fight for what they want and speak up. And that's what I'm doing. I finally have a passion with this. And I have people who message me telling me that Reparations, like, it's their favorite show, that it means so much to them that they're, like, glad that there are shows like this. Because there's not many shows like this. Like, a lot of performers, if you're in drag and if you're black or POC, like, you are tokenized. You get only get asked to do shows when it's Nicki Minaj night or it's Beyonce night. Or if you need to do Lady Marmalade and you need a little Kim, you hit me up. You know, like I don't want to always be that person. It felt really beautiful um, that, I don't know, black content was actually like being seen and cared about, it's the only, way that they they feel free or comfortable with themselves. And drag helped me find who I was. So I, I understand that. Like I can't imagine my life without it right now. I used to think like, oh, a drag show is nothing, but like, you know, it's just like another gig, it's another paycheck or I'm out having fun. But it really means that so much more to people, especially now because it's like, this is our way of, it's my way of connecting with my friends and people who live in the middle of America are, you know, people who live down the street who have never seen this now have these people. So, like, I do have a responsibility to my community and to myself, to be honest and be truthful. We've worn many hats, many wigs, but now we wear many hats as well. Like, before we were, you know, makeup artists, seamstress. Um, You know, uh, we made our own clothes, our own wigs, things like that, but now we have to do our own lighting. We have to do our own, uh, we edit our own videos. Like, I I do it all. I could win an Oscar, who knows, maybe. There should be a drag Oscar, so that'd be awesome. Because it's a lot of work that goes into this. It's so much work that I've never done before. This is what we do. Like, this is our lives. Like, you know, whether you're a DJ, a burlesque, or a drag queen, or you do all of it, like, this is our lives. And right now, we, you know, our our lives have been put on hold in a sense. It's so more important now for us to have things like this because the show's real community, um, it doesn't rely on being in the clubs or being around others. I do it because I love it. We're in a Panda Express, we're in a panoramic, Panasonic, pepperoni pizza roll pandemic right now. You can't be with your friends in the way that you used to. I was at the bar maybe three to four times a week, whether you know, performing. And, and I feel like it's really beautiful that we at least still can communicate and connect with each other. Uh, even if it's through the internet, I'm still able to catch up on my friends and see them perform and see them like work on their craft, you know? There's some friends I haven't seen since this started, but I watch their shows every time and I seen their makeup grow. I know what's going on cause I'm in their shows, I'm in their chat and I tune in to like see my friends and they tune in to watch my shows. Like it's a way for us to still be connected because it's all we have you know and like in the queer community like you know some people don't have their you know given family you know their you know their biological families like you know not everyone's on good terms with their families you know your friends your like your chosen family are what you have and if you you know want to stay safe and healthy you you have to stay away from people and at least with this like you can still be with your chosen family you know, it's not the same. It's nowhere near it. I miss seeing people's faces. I miss hugging my friends, hugging fans, taking pictures with people. I miss, you know, I miss snatching money out of people's hands. I really miss that. <laughs> I really do, I just, ugh. You know, if we just take this, you know, one, two mask at a time, you know, we can do this. And we can be back with our community. And I think it'll make us stronger as a community because especially the queer, queer community, we've endured so much, you know, so much over time and especially queer POCs, we've definitely endured a lot. So I feel like if anything, we're just gonna be stronger out of and, you know, come out of this braver and tougher and more thankful after this. I don't know, I love that we have, now I have this platform and this fan base that is bigger within, you know, the seven by seven miles of San Francisco. This is like something that's greater than myself. I think one of the good things about digital drag, once we moved it, you know, drag moved to the internet, is that it became accessible for everyone. Um, Drag became something that was attainable from everyone who had internet, you know? It didn't matter if you had the money to pay a cover or if you're over 21 to get into the bar. Like, our, you know, everyone was able to attend a drag show now and you know there were some things i never really paid attention to before it was like you know like it made it accessible accessible not in that sense like financially but also there are people who are disabled who can't go out to clubs because maybe the bar doesn't have the right access for them to get in there or it's not you know sanitized healthy enough for them you know because some people can't go out because their immune systems are so low and have to stay at home but now they're able to be a part of this like they are able to be a part of it. And it sucks that it took a pandemic for people to make everything accessible for others who can't have that access. But now, because now everything's accessible for everyone because it affects everyone. But before, no one really cared. And that's something that I am glad that we are learning that we can do with Twitch and online stuff because we can make this accessible. And when things open up, I'm going to continue to stream Reparations in some capacity. Like I will still have it streamed at the club if I'm doing it there. Like I still want my fans and, you know, my fans and friends in Utah, uh, Japan, you know, wherever they may be, I want them still to be able to be a part of a show that they really love, you know, just because we went to the club doesn't mean that they still can't be part of
3: it. Nikki is such an amazing and beautiful performer. We really can't do her or the many performers at Reparations Justice through an audio podcast. So for those of you listening, I really encourage you to check out the links for her Twitch and socials. Um, And if you're in San Francisco at any point, uh, check out Reparations at Oasis. It was such a fun conversation with Nikki. Um, What did you love about talking with Nikki Gio?
2: It was so fun. Nikki just held space for the multiple truths of that moment in time, of this moment in time of the pandemic. Both the longing for snatching dollars out of people's hands in the bar, <laughs> and also the ways in which the pandemic has pushed her to really think about how to make drag shows more accessible for those who could not or chose not to go to the bar. All the nuance. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I have been watching Nikki perform and host Reparations since pretty early on at, when it was first started. And so when we started the interview, I was like a, a little bit in awe. But it was so nice because she showed up with like she was still putting on her eye makeup. And she's just such a generous spirit and just kind of inviting in that way, in the way that she sets space. But also, you know, um, kind of cracking humor, too, which is which is always wonderful. I'm not ready for the in-person events yet, but I will be there soon, I hope. So let's turn to Christina Wong, who's another fearless performer. Christina Wong is a Performance artist and comedian who founded the Anti-Sewing Squad on March 24th, 2020. So that's like in California, that's I think two weeks after um, we went into lockdown. The acronym for Anti-Sewing Squad is ASS or ASS, which is a network of hundreds of aunties across the United States who have sewn and shipped tens of thousands of masks to First Nations, farm workers, migrants seeking asylum, incarcerated communities and poor communities of color.
1: I actually didn't know what mutual aid was. People were like, what you're doing is mutual aid. And I had to like look up a YouTube video on it. And I was like, oh, you know, oh, it's like charity, but without that condescending pat- you know, patronizing thing about it. We're literally like watching like our cities like in complete chaos and with unrest and, and stuff. And I remember typing, if this is the end, we go down sewing. heard that there was a need for home sewn masks, it was a moment where I was like, I have an essential skill. I can't, I didn't become a nurse, but I can help a nurse. Uh, I was like, okay, I've only sewn like my set pieces, vagina costumes, like completely crude props and like all sorts of fabric genitalia, never made medical equipment, never expected to save anyone's life with this kind of stuff. But let me do this. I started sewing masks and I offered very naively, you know, with my half yard of cotton fabric, oh, I'll make you a mask. And that quickly escalated into hundreds of requests, some very scary requests from people who are afraid to go to work. Uh, I'm talking about nurses, people working at homeless shelters, delivery people who were like, I, I don't know what to do. They're telling us at the hospital to sew bandanas or They're telling us at the hospital to tie bandanas around our face. So, you know, I was totally overwhelmed. I think, I mean, the gift of like Audrey just sort of planting that image in my head as we were like on the street and they handed me their pre-cuts and said, you know, my hands are actually best made for breaking bread. So I can't cut anymore, but I'll find you other volunteers. They all happen to be Chinese, which is really weird. But planting this idea of aunties in my head was great because I think it sort of takes the pressure off of professional seamstresses making masks. Or anonymous people with no faces who labor for you, right? That's to me what a lot of these other groups are implying. But something about saying "Auntie" in the group, like, has given folks a script for how to, to to enter the group and is sort of like cast them, give them a role to play in the group. that we can reference each other Uh, and some aunties still like go go hey ladies and I'm always like (laughs) with that because I feel like it's better to say aunties because it's just so much sweeter but yeah I think it implies this sort of care I I usually try to just say thank you auntie like I don't know what gender they identify with but (laughs) but I think people like that because they feel like oh I'm part of this community oh I'm an auntie I'm a I'm in this family of the aunties they're very social in the group and love like talking and sharing and and this has been their kind of comfort in this time this has been their community in a very scary time and has given them a sense of purpose uh that keeps them from feeling helpless, but also making sure that they feel like they are directly connected to who they are sending their masks to. So when we have a request from a community, we offer it out to the group. It's not an automatic, okay, we'll send those over. It's we can put up your request and the aunties decide whether or not they're going to stay up through the night or whatever the process is to sew those masks. And I think for me, it's very important for the recipients to because we've gotten so Amazon primed to understand that you could just get things by pressing buttons. You forget that there's someone on the other end who did that. But occasionally I would get a request that felt like they were treating me like a free version of the 99 cent store or that like, I just have nothing to do all day. and, And I just love sewing free stuff for people. And I needed to, I felt like I wanted to give dignity to that labor. We have a whole team of super aunties and those are the aunties who, who uh, maintain our spreadsheets and vet the requests that we get from organizations. But yeah, we have all sorts of like positions that, that have been invented over the last nine months. We have haggle aunties. Uh, these are aunties who, go, who at one point, uh, when it was really hard to get materials to go into the garment district and their job was just to bargain for the lowest price. We have a wheel them deal on my auntie who basically she's Korean and she, she found a Korean guy who sells inkjet cartridges and medical equipment we have cutting aunties who cut the fabric we have driver aunties but yeah there there is i I find also in the asian american community like that's being used as a reference more and more to refer to like create a certain kind of pride around getting older it's like i'm an auntie i'm one of those aunties sitting around watching tv right and and it sort of gives us a sense of pride versus like self-loathing around getting older or being without child or whatever, we have to find other ways for this work to create value and meaning for us who are performing it, or else we're just gonna we're just gonna croak, pop, like get exploited by these systems. So yeah, it feels like this weird performance, like I'm building this platform with help, right? <laughs> but it's also about like reminding people that this labor takes time. But really like at this point, that's why like we we just see it as like, this is solidarity work at this point. This is like unpaid labor supporting groups that are invisible. And so that's when the shift began to happen where it began to feel more political in the sense of when you begin to look at who these communities are, a lot of them are indigenous. A lot of them are undocumented. A lot are immigrant, A lot don't have access to water, to food, to healthcare. That's when it begins to feel political because it feels like, why is the government, why didn't the government help provide these folks who, you know, provide our food table for us? There's sort of of an immediacy with mutual aid that government can't fit. And I've been but it also just like, I feel like FEMA should be abolished and replaced with us, like with salaries, but we could totally do it way better. Like we could find those communities, but I do feel like there's a, sort of a culture of care and an actual human connection that is missing from how care is delivered. And there's something I think really amazing about receiving a box of home-sewn masks versus like a giant crate of factory-made masks. Like, yes, both serve the same function, but there's something about making that heart-to-heart connection with the community that we do that we would love to figure out how how FEMA could also do. I don't want to preserve the pandemic part of this but one thing I really loved is the care and the respect that I feel for people that I never really had time to do before right like I never really had time to like sit and contemplate and connect with these folks who In any other situation, I could see myself meeting them and just like not getting along with them or not finding a way to connect. But something about doing this project together has connected us for life. They say the word, the Merriam-Webster word of the year is pandemic. I really feel like it's care and it's about thinking how radical an idea it is to to care for people you you've never seen, to put your care and energy into people who are actually indirectly caring for you, whether it's as farm workers or day laborers, teachers or medical professionals, like they may not be actually, you might not be in the hospital, but, but it, is, it is so radical to think about like, oh, I can put my labor towards these communities that keep us going, that keep our economy going, that keep uh, food moving through our cities. And that's huge.
3: I find myself chuckling every time I listen to this interview. Um, There are so many good lines in it.
2: I know. I love how she's like, one day I'm sewing vagina costumes. And then she's like, how can I use my skills to show up for this pandemic? (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I mean, if also, if you get a chance to see Christina do her performance where she's in the vagina costume, it's also um, wonderful and hilarious. But yeah, I loved how she breaks down mutual aid, um, just kind of cuts through any of the conceptions of what it is. And I love when she's like... Um, you know, I've never sewn on medical equipment before, but let's do this. And, and also how she reframes the word of the year um, and kind of the framing of 2020 around pandemic to actually thinking about care, right? And how we showed up for each other. Yeah, and, and Reparations Drag and the Anti-Sewing Squad are models of spaces that, they're not necessarily physical spaces, but they're spaces over the last, you know, two years or 18 months where people could collectively care for one another. And the lesson for us was that everyone can show up in ways that they know how, We all have skills and talents that can care for each other, that can care for ourselves. And we don't always have to lead or innovate new efforts. A lot of times we just need to show up in the spaces that are being set. Yeah.
2: And let's cross-pollinate. Let's work across disciplines and sectors. How we care for one another can take so many different forms. A virtual stage for drag queens of color to perform and get paid, or a collective crew of aunties across the country united in making personal protective equipment for people that needed it the most because the government did not provide. This is what a culture of care looks like. We will be back next month. However, in the meantime, if you wanna deepen into this conversation, you're thirsty for some more learning, you can find all the profiles, essays, learning guides, videos, and more at the Cultures of Care website. belonging.edu berkeley.edu slash cultures dash of dash care.
3: Yeah, or drop us a line if you want to connect, if you have questions on the learning guides or any of the research or even the videos, um, or tag us on Instagram at Othering and Belonging or on Twitter at ONB Institute Um, and shout out your own Cultures of Care activities and practitioners using the hashtag Cultures of Care. Cultures of Care is produced by myself, Evan Bissell.
2: And me, Giovanna Fisher.
3: <laughs> thanks, Gio. Erfan Moradi is on podcast edits. Majo Calderon is on interview edits. Alex Lemire-Pasternek is on sound and music with additional music for the podcast from Emily Sprague, Puddle of Infinity, and Silent Partner. Many thanks to the Hewlett Foundation for their support in making this project possible. Cultures of Care is a project of the Othering and Belonging Institute. Thank you so much for being with us. We will see you next month.